We're going to start formally, and then I am going to sit down and we'll try and have a conversation. But I want to say a few words to you before we start the conversation part of tonight's event. We are very excited um, here at the LSE to be running the LSE's first ever literary festival. It's a packed weekend of free events which celebrate, in one sense, the completion of this new academic building, and in another sense, an exploration of the interaction between the arts and the social sciences. I think the, arts and the, the link between the arts and the social sciences has quite a long history at the LSE. You might say it started when the LSE started, perhaps inspired by George Bernard Shaw, who was one of the LSE's famous founders. And we've now taken up that idea and pursued it as part of the LSE's expanding arts program. So I want to extend a very warm welcome to all of you tonight. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to the start of the Literary Weekend. Now you've probably picked up from the program that we're not quite the launch event. That happens in this theatre at eight o'clock. I think we're the warm-up event. So the pressure is on us a little bit to set the tone. This is reality, creative responses to social realities. And it marks the culmination of a creative writing competition for London schools. That may seem only very loosely related to the LSE's usual areas of interest. But in fact, communication of ideas is at the heart of what the LSE does and particularly responses to contemporary social issues. So we hoped that our engagement with the schools might provide an opportunity for teenagers and their families and their friends to gain some sort of insight into what we do and perhaps encourage them, and I don't just mean the teenagers, encourage them to pursue further study, perhaps at the LSE. It's true we wanted that um, as part of what we're doing tonight. But we very seriously want you to consider the questions we're asking in this literary festival. Is literature relevant today? Can it make a difference? So in the next hour, or a little bit less since we started late, we're going to have a panel discussion that looks at how authors, especially authors for teenage readers, find inspiration in contemporary social issues. Perhaps they don't. Perhaps they do. Um, how they deal with social issues, what they, how they go about their process of authorship, what they expect us, the reader, to gain from their writings, and so on. At the end of our conversation, we'll have the prize giving for the reality competition. And I'm not trying to build Oscar-type suspense. It's just where it fits. Our panel includes popular and award-winning authors who've dealt with topics as wide-ranging as Ethiopian street children and Nazi Germany, and done so using a variety of vehicles, some using reality, some comedy, some pure fantasy. I know you were probably all expecting this session to be chaired by Peter Florence, the director of the Hay Festivals in Wales, Colombia, Spain, Lebanon, Ireland, and Kenya. He's unable to be with us for family reasons, but he sends his best wishes and uh, hopes for success with this event. So you have me as a rather novice understudy taking his place. 
sorry that that's probably going to be a little disappointing for some of you, but we've still got our authors, and I want to say something about each of them before I open the floor to them and to you for our conversation. Um, I'll start uh, on my right, Meg Rossoff. <coughs> Meg Rossoff has had, seems to me, about three or four careers in publishing and advertising before bursting onto the literary scene in 2004 with one of the most highly claimed debut novels of recent years. How I Live Now won the Guardian and Branford Bowes Awards, was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for New Fiction as well as for the Whitbread, and has sold over 200,000 copies in the UK alone. Speaking as an academic, that's the kind of sales that you only dream of. Just in Case, second of her books, published in 2006, was shortlisted for the Costa Book Award and won the prestigious Carnegie Mellon in 2007. She moved from New York to London in 1989 and she lives here with her husband and her daughter. Next to her is uh, Morris Gleitzman, an award-winning children's author who I know you will all have heard of, celebrated for his difficulty to wrap difficult issues within easily accessible books. So he's dealt with AIDS and cancer and asylum seekers and immigration, and most recently the Holocaust, of course, in once and in, again in his latest novel, Then. He began his career as a promotions writer and then wrote comedy scripts for The Norman Gunston Show until his first novel for children, other Facts of Life was published in 1985, followed by Two Weeks with the Queen, for which he won the Children's Book Award. He's written more than 27 books for children. And then next to him, uh, Anthony McGowan. Before turning to full-time writing, Anthony McGowan gained a PhD in philosophy, worked as a nightclub bouncer, an open university tutor, a journalist, a civil servant. Clearly, it's perfect training for an aspiring author. Because in 2006, he won the Teenage Book Trust Prize for Henry Tumor, which was also shortlisted for the Sheffield Children's Book Award, the Lancashire Children's Book of the Year Award, the Redbridge Teenage Book Award, and the Catalyst Award. <coughs> and his new and highly controversial book, The Knife That Killed Me, or The Knife What Killed Me, I'm not sure which it is, was released last year. Next to him, we have Elizabeth Laird. She's published many books for all ages and has won and been shortlisted for many prestigious awards. I'm picking on some of those books. In 2008, Crusade was shortlisted for the Costa Children's Book of the Year and the Silip Carnegie Medal. Jake's Tower was shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal and the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize. And in 2004, the Garbage King won Scotland, the Scottish Arts Council Book Prize. Elizabeth has spent many years living and working abroad, including long spells in Lebanon, Ethiopia, and India, and you can see that in her work. She and her husband now divide their time between London and Edinburgh. And then finally, Patrick, Patrick Ness. He's an American who now lives in England. 
um, after a childhood spent travelling abroad, including, so I'm told, a spell in Hawaii at the same time as Barack Obama. That makes you very famous. He had his first story published in Genre Magazine in 1997 and has published two books for adults, a novel called The Crash of Hennington and a short story collection called Topics About Which I Know Nothing. And then his first book for teenagers, The Knife of Never Letting Go, won the 2008 Book Trust Teenage Prize in November last year and the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize. So, we've got some pretty esteemed authors uh, in our presence. And what I want to do is have a conversation with them where I try and ask them some of the sorts of questions that I imagine you want to ask them. But then I want to leave quite a lot of time for you to do the asking. So at the beginning, we just want to just kick off trying to find a little more about the author, <coughs> out about the authors, and then it will be over to you to have a conversation with them. Now, we might have to pull in, well, the authors might have to pull in a bit, but I think the acoustics here are pretty good. Can you hear me up at the back? Yes. Okay. I haven't written any novels, but yes. I think everybody thinks that they could write a novel. And everybody wants to know what makes a novelist special. We want to know something about their private workings, I suppose, how they think about things. So I want to ask perhaps each of the authors here to tell us something a bit more personal than you can get from the dust cover of a novel about themselves. This is a bit like being in a tutorial, and typically you pick the person on your left if you're left-handed and the person on your right if you're right-handed. I'm left-handed, so Morris. When I was 17, I was um, a university student in Canberra in Australia, needing to work part-time to pay for my studies, and one Christmas holidays I went along to a department store hoping for a bit of casual work, expecting I'd be loading parcels into cars or stacking merchandise onto shelves and to my surprise and kind of intrigued pleasure they said right you're Santa <laughs> it turns out their 69 year old regular Santa had been rushed to hospital with a bowel infection and I was handed a voluminous red suit and a false white beard made as it turned out from real horse hair the one of the itchiest substances on the planet. <laughs> and I was installed in a grotto with several cushions stuffed up my... Um, and children came and sat on my knee and told me what they wanted for Christmas. And I, I had ambitions to be a writer at this stage, so I decided to try and use this experience. And as each child came and sat on my knee and told me that they'd like a power saw or <laughs> a moon bike or a year's supply of chocolate licorice or whatever, whatever it might be, kind of looked into their eyes and I said, yes, but what do you really want? <laughs> and often they just looked at me as though I was an idiot, a skinny, a skinny 17-year-old idiot with a high-pitched voice and very few real Santa attributes. But in their, eyes, in their eyes, I started to get a sense of what it was that they really wanted. They wanted stories that would take them seriously, that would show them that even though the world can be 
a heap of crap sometimes that even at their tender age they have the power to go out and identify the problems in their lives and in the lives of the people they care about and in their communities and develop strategies to try and solve those problems and to do it with humour and a bit of anarchy and a preparedness to break rules and do illegal stuff if the cause was, was demanding enough. And I realised that at the end of that little, um, little experience, I actually caught an eye infection from the horsehair beard on the third day and had to be rushed to hospital. I think I saw the real Santa up the other end of the ward punching his stomach. But as I lie half-blinded, as I lay half-blinded, I, um, I was reflecting on that little experience and I realised that I, I'd also got what I wanted for Christmas, which was um, an inkling that there was a reason to spend my life writing for eight and nine and ten and eleven-year-olds. And um, although the eye infection has cleared up, um, my desire to continue doing that hasn't. And I, I plan to do it until finally I can resume my career as a Santa as a legitimate <laughs> 69-year-old. Thanks, Mara. Elizabeth, perhaps I can look oh, yes. on you next. Right. I mean, well, did you always um, know you wanted to be an author? Yes, I did. I, I, I did, actually. I, when I was uh, very, very young, I started writing a diary, and it filled me with a burning pleasure to write this diary. I don't know why. But um, I, was, I was a child basically during the Stone Age, really, a long time ago, and um, I had these aunts called Mary, Mary, Mona, Martha and Nancy, and, um, oh, and May, and they, they all had Victorian novels in their, in their uh, houses, in their spare bedrooms, with titles like Lost in London, you know, and Drunk in the Snow, and they were about sad little children, you know, in, in, they were Victorian, weepy novels, and I used to read these novels, they used to make me cry so much I got sinusitis, a problem which has afflicted me for the rest of my life. Anyway, um, so I, I found what I liked from a novel, what I liked from a story was to feel something. I wanted to feel something. And later on, much later on, because I didn't write my first novel until I was 40, um, much, much later on, I, I started to, to remember the death of my little brother, who died when I was seven. And I was overwhelmed with sorrow about this, this child. And I started to write, and it poured out of me like, like molten lava. And I then realized that actually, for me, the, the, the thing is, that, that a feeling was what came first, and then I wanted to express it. But I felt also that people of your age, many of you, feel quite often quite scared because it, uh, in the 1940s and 50s when I was growing up, it wasn't the same kind of world. Now, you often feel that you're living in shark-infested waters, basically, don't you? I mean, there's terrifying news on the television, and all sorts of problems you know, out in the street, and you have a lot of difficulties in your lives. And I think the value of stories and the value of fiction is that it helps you to have strategies for coping with, your, with, with the things you, you, you may not face, but you might face one day. And you think, well, how would I behave if I was living on the streets of Addis Ababa? How would I behave if I'd been snatched away from my home in Pakistan and sent to be a camel jockey in Dubai? How would I be? And, and it, it helps you to kind of rehearse scenarios in your mind. Anyway, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I can move to you. Are you operating like that? So, um, I mean, your book, if you are operating like that, 
I might have slightly ratcheted up the pretension here slightly, <laughs> but I have a slightly different approach to, to writing. That um, I, I was a student for a long, a long time, um, and if you're a student for long enough, I know lots of you out there will be at college one day. Um, sooner or later, you're, you're going to read a book called S.Z. by Roland Barthes. He's a French philosopher, and in this book, what he, he takes um, a story by a writer called Balzac, who was a kind of definitively realist writer, French writer. Um, so he's a kind of writer that's supposed to describe the world the way it really is. Uh, and what Bart does to this story is he shows that every single word in this story doesn't come from an observation of the world, but either comes from other books or kind of cultural commonplaces or, 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 or jokes that are in the language. And it's, uh, it kind of destroys any hope you have of being a kind of realistic writer because you know, writers use language, and language you take from other linguistic sources, from other books. Um, and it's very hard then, and so the world is made of objects, and books are made of words, and there's a distance between those two things. And so sometimes the, the more you think you're being realistic in describing the world, but all you're doing is just talking about other books. And I think about it in relation to, to my book, The Knife That Killed Me. I mean, it, it might appear to be one of the more you know, realistic books from the ones that have been written by my, my colleagues here. Um, it's, you know, it's about knife violence in, in contemporary England. But you know, I've never met a teenager who stabbed anyone or been stabbed. I read, I read some newspaper accounts, so that's a literary source. I used a lot of my memories of being at school years ago when knives weren't really an issue. Um, it's based partly on the Iliad by, by Homer. So although it appears to be a kind of realistic book, in fact it's made out, made out of words. It's an object made out of words. So although I might, I might reach down trying to touch the world with those words, I'm not sure I, I really did. I, I made an object made out of words. So, um, <laughs> now, I told you it was going to be pretentious, didn't I? will explain that to you later. <laughs> <laughs> what he's really saying is don't buy his book, buy our book. <laughs> <laughs> what he's saying is his book's fantastic. And it's I've read it. He's saying he's got a PhD in philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I warned you. Yeah. So, does that answer your question? I'm not sure. Was that what you were asking? I'm just going to move left. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. We're still going on. But I actually, the reason I write books is because I thought it would impress girls. Oh, yeah, well, I guess it does. Oh, some, some girls. <laughs> Meg, ah uh, yes, disagree yes. now. Bring us down to earth, Meg. Yes. Well, I haven't read that. Uh, I don't think I would understand that book actually if I read it. Um, uh, yes, I uh, I wrote my first novel when I was forty-five, and what I was doing the twenty-five years before that was trying to piss my parents off, I think, um, <laughs> by working in advertising because I was the kind of great white hope of the family. And I was supposed to be an academic and really clever and, in some way. And so, the, uh, and because I didn't go through my adolescence when I was supposed to, I started rebelling at around 20. And so by doing that, I went into advertising. And in, in, I, I'm a Jewish American. And in some Jewish families, you know, if you do something really awful, your parents put on black and go around saying, I have, we have no daughter. And when I went into advertising, they, for about 20 years, they went around saying, we have no daughter. Um, but eventually, I had this image of my own funeral. Um, and uh, it, it was going to be the saddest event in the whole world because nobody was going to come. Because I, uh, I, I kept getting fired from jobs in advertising for having a really, really bad attitude. Um, and I figured uh, nobody from advertising would come because I didn't really have any friends in advertising. Um, and maybe a very, very few of my near friends and relations might show up to my funeral, and they would all stand around going, God, she has such a pathetic life. <laughs> um, so it was kind of that, I think. You know, you can sort of think of these things for years and years and years. 
um, that got me writing in the end. The reason, well, the other reason I didn't write, uh, and I never wrote stories or, I mean, unlike most writers, uh, I think probably the last story I wrote before the novel I wrote was back when I was about seven years old, um, and it was a horse book. Um, but we did. Um, <laughs> I just want you to see I'm still reading horse books. Um, uh, and the reason I didn't was because I'm not a storyteller, and I would still say I'm not a storyteller. And it's a great thing to be able to tell all you lovely, young, impressionable minds. You actually don't have to be a storyteller to... Um, to write novels, you can steal plots from other people. <laughs> um, and so that's what I did in the end. Um, you know, I stole plots and changed them a little bit so people wouldn't recognize them, and, um, and it worked. <laughs> Apparently there, only, there are only seven. Well, seven or two plots. My eye comes to the two plots, uh, Stranger Comes to Town and The Journey. And, and that's Actually, my first novel was A Stranger Comes to Town, They Go on a Journey. <laughs> so wasting them by putting them together. I know, I know. Lost ever since. Patrick, uh, you could probably pick that theme up, but can you also take us in another direction? How much are you using reality in what you're writing? Um, and why are you an author? What are you trying to do? Well, when I'm, not, I'm an author because uh, I want the world to be the way that I want it to be, and it rarely, rarely ever is. And um, when I was when I was young, especially, I come from a, a, a very very religious family, for example, and I always felt like a real outsider in it. And so I, I think that's a good position for a writer to be in is the outsider. So you can just watch the world as it goes by and write down your thoughts about it without having to really participate or as a way of participating. And uh, so I mean, I always wanted to write because it was a way of controlling things that I had no control over. And uh, so I always wrote. I always wrote. I wrote when I was young. I wrote when I was younger than the people here. I wrote when I was a teenager. I got my degrees in writing. My first professional job was as a corporate writer. I started advertising and speeches and all that. And um, I did write my novel, first novel, um, when I was about 21, 22. It was a pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, 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 it would never see the light of day, thank God. But I got it out of my system so that I could write books that you know, might actually be any, any good. And as for, as for using reality, as for using social reality, which I, was, I guess is the topic of our whole evening here, um, and which was part of the competition, I, my strong opinion is that I think if you set out to write any kind of adjective novel, any kind of social realist novel, if you set out to write a satirical novel, if you set out to write a, I don't know, a woman's novel, whatever, you know, whatever, I think if you set out to write any kind of novel, I think you're setting out to write a mediocre novel. I think you need to just set out to write a novel. And there's a world of difference. Anthony talked about um, his book, which is excellent, and it is a lot about knife crime, but I mean, there's a world of difference between sitting down and saying, I'm going to write a book about knife crime, and saying, I want to tell a story about a kid who has to carry a knife because this happens, and there's another character who talks to him. One is a sermon, and the other is a story. And I don't think anybody wants to read sermons. I think they want to read stories. Um, and so my book, which I think is probably the most fantastical of the panel, it's on another planet, it's uh, everybody can hear what everyone else is thinking, there's a talking dog. Um, I didn't sit down to, I'd, at no point did I think I need to include this social issue or that social issue. My only concern the whole way through was, uh, is this story good enough? Am I being entertained as a writer? And if I'm not being entertained as a writer, there's no way you're going to be entertained as a reader, so I have to be entertained. And, and, and I think that if you, if you really are 
sensitive and you know and stubborn and mule-headed enough to be a writer, then you know that says something about an artistic temperament that you're going to respond to the world anyway. And so any story that you're going to respond to and want to tell is going to have all that stuff in it. So when I was done, I could look back and see that it had a, a bunch of stuff about information overload, and it, it also features a knife quite heavily and about power. But the whole time I was writing it, I, all I wanted to do was tell a really good story, and the rest to me just follows. And I think that's the only way, I'm gonna, the only way that I'm ever going to write a good book anyway. That's brilliant. Wow. Food for thought. Okay, I have a long <coughs> list of questions, but I feel as though I should at least give people the opportunity to ask their own questions. And if you don't, I'm just going to keep on going. So hands up if you want to ask questions seems the easiest way to do it. And I'll point. Yes? Uh, Joshua is my name. Um, you were talking about uh, speech writing, which is uh, part of what I do, and seems like um, a useful point of reference for weaving in uh, creative responses to social realities, um, as it's what you know politicians, amongst others, use. Uh, so, would you guys just like to discuss what you've seen in regards to uh, Obama? Seems that's a fairly, fairly obvious. Current uh, Obama, Barack Obama. Um, uh, because obviously he, one of his great skills is the fact that when he, when he gives speeches, they're not sermons, they're very much stories or interwoven with such. <laughs> People might even disagree with you that they're stories. Um, I, I don't think we do anything no, at all similar to speech writing in the sense that... Um, Speech writers write speeches for other people to say, or speeching. The, the art of oratory is something which is very, very different from writing a novel. Because when you're writing a, a speech, you're inhabiting your own speech, you're speaking yourself, uh, unless somebody else has written for you. When you're writing a novel, what you're doing is living in a world created of a whole host of different people. And while you're in the process of writing that novel, you're living in two worlds at the same time. It's a really weird experience, don't you agree? Yeah. Mm. You know, you get up and have breakfast, but actually, half of you is wherever it is your novel is. Mm. I think there is a useful reference point, though, because it seemed to me that in a lot of writing for young people, there are particularly, perhaps of slightly earlier eras, and in particular in, in third-person um, fiction, there is a traditional author's voice that can often sound like... Um, a, uh, a, a, a politician trying mm. to, to sway opinion. Um, <coughs> when, when people give speeches, particularly politicians, they are, they are making themselves, even though they may be talking about the future of a nation and the well-being of the people, they're actually putting themselves at the centre of that, of that story. It's really about them. And I think most writers of fiction know the danger of a story being too overtly about the author, other than in some of the more arcane um, literary experiments that perhaps you're familiar <laughs> with, Anthony. Um, <laughs> <not> to, <laughs> only as... Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so I, I've, I've always worked really hard to, to, to try and um, let the, the main characters in my stories do the speaking and for it to be evident as early and fully as possible that the story is about them, and it would probably be a good idea if um, if, if some politicians did that when um, when talking to their um, constituency and whether 
<laughs> but, but I would say that actually, uh, although you, you're talking through a character, you're still the puppet master. Yeah. And I kind of agree with Patrick, um, what he was saying about, uh, I write, uh, um, what Patrick said, in order to make the world the way he wants it to be, um, I'm kind of secretly uh, incredibly controlling, and, and I want to lecture people about how the world really should be. Um, but it, it, it doesn't come across as a lecture, I, I don't think, um, or a speech. But, you know, what you are the puppet master when, when you're creating characters, and all your characters presumably, I mean, people, the, the, way, the way to most irritate a writer is to say, so your work seems quite autobiographical. <laughs> and, and all writers immediately go, oh, no, 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 nothing to do with me at all. Um, but in fact, I, I think most fiction is autobiographical to the, to the extent that it's the writer's sensibility that is actually coming out in the various characters. Um, so it may not be literally autobiographical, and I'm not really wild about literal autobiography or, or near autobiography in fiction, but um, you are creating a world which is the world as you would like it to be in some way. I think political writing, I mean, I, I agree with everything that's been said, but I think political writing is advertising rather than, uh, I mean, it has narrative, and there's, of course, advertising narrative, as just as there's political narrative. And Obama might use narrative in his speeches because there's something satisfying about listening to a narrative, but I think it's still advertising, mm -hmm. it's selling the product. And even if it's a product that, that's great that you might agree with, I think it's still, still salesmanship, and we should always keep a skeptical eye to anybody who's trying to sell you anything. Because we're not trying to sell you anything. <laughs> Except our books. Except our books. Yes, you did. You did notice the table outside, didn't you? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel one point of connection, which is that Obama's best speeches can almost work like music. You know, there's just a beautiful sound to, to his speaking. And occasionally, that's how, how we write. You know, we just try and produce a beautiful passage, and just a moment of music within our. Within our I words. believe him, and he makes you feel good. So, I mean, that's quite a good story, actually. I, you know, it's not. Yeah, there is some advertising involved, but you know, probably good advertising makes you want to have something, and and a good speech makes you want to have a piece of him. He's a stranger who's come to town, so I guess he's. Yeah. <laughs> and he's on a very long journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's a question just in the middle. Yeah. Who's got a question? Oh, she's shy now. Here, yeah. in the green cardigan. Um, well, I'm not a speechwriter. I'm 14 years old and I'm still learning about emotive language in English. But um, I just wanted to know, like, when you write a no when you write a novel and stories, do you write them to get through to people or to entertain them, or both? Neither. 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 <laughs> Neither. Both. Neither. Okay. One minute from this side and one minute from this side. I've never had any success as a writer writing anything for someone else. Like when I've tried to write for other people, when I've tried to write what I perceive that they might want, it's been crap. It's been because there's nothing at the end. So I mean, well, the lesson I had to learn through painful experiences that I write for a reader, a, a readership of one, which is me. If I'm liking the story, then there's a good chance other people will like yeah. it, and that's 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 really it. It's hard to get to, but that that's really it for me. I quite agree with you. I I, I feel the same. Um, you know, you, you, you get obsessed by a story. The story becomes you. You have to spend a lot of time writing it down. You don't care who reads it. Well, well you sort of do. I mean, you know, you, you, you do in, the, in a way. But actually, you don't write it for other people. You write it because you really desperately... Do you feel like that when you're writing? Is that how you feel?
That's fair enough. Yeah, but that's because you're 14. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It goes on for a while, can too. Can I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> until I was about 40. Can I, can I violently disagree? Um, it, yes. My first two books are meant to be funny. And if you're trying to be funny, being funny means making other people laugh. It's no good if you just make yourself laugh and nobody else. So you if, you're, funny yourself. No, if you're a comedian, you, your success is judged by how big a laugh you get, not by how amusing you find yourself. No, when you're so you're, you're constantly funny. looking at, is this, am I amusing you? Am I amusing you? If not, I'm going to change it. But aren't you screaming with laughter when you write something funny um, yourself? Well, because if not, it's not funny. Well, but sometimes that's a comedy thing, and you... Can you tickle yourself? Do you know how the comedies are not funny? Because they're written by people who are writing jokes that they think other people are. That's why they're poor. They're thinking, oh, they're really like... Okay, but then another thing is, if you're an adult and you write a book that's just expressing your inner inner feelings and what emerges is a children's book, then you should grow up, really, I think. If you're an adult, write the That's why I think that, you know, I write books for teenagers. In denial. <laughs> I'm not grown up. I'm beginning to feel as though there's not that much gap. Not that much of a gap between academics and novelists at this rate. I, I can remember Paul Collier uh, coming to talk to the, LS, at the LSE, and he is the author of The Bottom Billion, so writing about development issues in Africa. And he got up on the stage and he said, you know, he's written a lot of books. That's what academics do, they write books. But this bottom billion was the first book that he had written for other people to read. And it struck a chord with me, because I think a lot of academics write just to work out for themselves how something works. I would say, though, you know, you can can post-analyze all the reasons why a book is successful, why other people like your books. When I wrote my first novel, I had absolutely no clue whether anybody... I, I wrote ads for 15 years. Nobody ever understood them. And certainly no one ever remembered them. I mean, I thought they were absolutely brilliant, but nobody else ever, ever got them. So when I sat down to write a novel, I just assumed that nobody would like it or buy it. Um, and I was quite shocked. And I, I actually think that you, it, there's a huge element of luck involved. If what you happen to write... What you want to write happens to strike a chord with someone else. Isn't necessarily, you know, I could be a ballet dancer, um, but I don't think anyone would pay to come see me. Um, but you know, I if, pay Meg. So, well, yeah, you pay a lot, probably. So I mean, you know, there's a, there's an element of so many things have to line up. You have to be able to write. I think. I mean, I'm a style freak. I think you you know writing really well is really important. Um, but, you know, talk to Dan Brown. He doesn't believe that, obviously. He wrote the Da Vinci Code, and he's a lot richer than any of us. Uh, and he can't write at all. So, you know, there are all sorts of elements that can make a, a, a decent book. And, you know, the, in a way, the fun thing is to write the, to figure out the way that hasn't been done yet and, and make a fortune with that. And, in fact, there's a girl in Japan who just wrote a huge, huge best-selling novel on her mobile phone. Uh, posting 10,000 words a day um, on a blog site, and the whole thing written on her mobile phone, sitting in the back room of her parents' house, and it was number two on the bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So, you know, no rules and no even reasons, I think, why something works or, or why people respond to it. You have to be lucky. Good luck with your writing, anyway. Other questions? 
in the middle, in green again. Well, a lot of you in no, green, yes. No, no in the... <coughs> further back. Uh, further back. <coughs> <coughs> Um, when you write your books, do you feel like your job is done after it's been published or after you've gotten an award for it? After, what was the second After bit? you've gotten an award for it. <laughs> do you have to Received win? Received an award. <laughs> you have to be pretty lucky to win awards, I think. I mean, once the book, I don't know, for me, once the book is written and out, I try to stop thinking about it because it takes a year from the time you finish the book to the time that it shows up in a bookstore. And, you know, an awful lot of books disappear in about three weeks. And, you, you know, you, you can't just sit there kind of hoping that it's going to win an award. You have to go on to the next one. In a way, you have to treat it like a job, I think. I, well, my next book comes out in May, and I'm already finished with the first draft of the one before after that. So I haven't thought about that book that comes out in May for, for a year. Satisfying thing for, for me as a writer is actually holding the book in my hand, you know, between between hardcovers and under a sleeve and all that on the pages. That, but you open it up, and there's always a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that to me was the top moment that really made me feel like a real writer, whatever that is, that I could actually hold it in my hand. Well, I, I think about awards quite a lot, especially <laughs> this year, where about four times I had to smile and clap as Patrick goes up and wins. It's <laughs> extremely uh, annoying. Also, the, the children's book world is very different to the adult book world. There are loads of children's prizes, and it, it somehow, it, so if you don't get shortlisted, you feel it's been a, it's a bit of a slap in the face. And so it's, I, I, you shouldn't think about these things, but I think about them quite a lot. And also, that they're a lot of fun. You know, writing is a lonely business. You sit in a room and you type. It's a time when you, you go out there and you, and you meet. You meet your public. And, it's, and um, you meet and other authors. Other too. authors, yeah. And these are often really exciting, fun, fun events. And, um, so they shouldn't be important. Um, there are, I, 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 did, I did a sum once, and there are only 238 people in the world who actually judge awards. <laughs> and there are, other than there are the many Children's Choice Awards, there are hundreds of thousands of children around the world who actually, and um, teenagers, who, who actually get to vote for the books they, they read. Everyone I know who writes for young people doesn't um, doesn't really care too much as long as they've got reasonable sales um, to to begin with. Doesn't care too much about the 238 people. Cares a lot about the people we actually write the books for. And when they get a chance to to give you a nod, that 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 feels pretty good. But I I actually would like to ban all awards. And I speak simultaneously as an award winner and an embittered and jealous award loser. <laughs> I would like to ban all awards because other than a little bit of marketing, sort of a bit of a marketing nudge, they don't really do us authors um, any, any, any good at all. They, they divert our attention from where it should be and it differs from author to author. Um, I, I, I write my books for my main characters. Um, I, I sometimes actually imagine them sitting down and reading their story, which I've helped them tell and I've helped them have some of the experiences that become part of that story. Um, other authors um, visualise the whole process differently. Some apparently spend hours anxiously wondering if, if, um, if certain French philosophers are right <laughs> and, 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 the, and the books are 
a meaningless <laughs> collection of, of <laughs> words that um, I, I think the key I think I think where um, I think where your French mate maybe was, was, was getting his knickers in a twist unnecessarily was that if we assume if, if we assume that the books we write are meant to mean exactly the same thing to every person who reads them they must be received in exactly the same way then some of those points I think are very salient but if we can relax, and it takes us control freaks a bit of an effort to let a little bit, bit of control go, but if we realise that even forget the language, just in the spaces between the words and the ideas, there are an infinite number in every book of opportunities for every single reader to add some of their own experience. For example, I never, almost never in my books describe the clothes that the characters are wearing unless it's vital to the plot. And I've spoken to tens, probably hundreds of thousands of young people through my career about my books, and they've come up with many valid criticisms, but not one has said to me, Morris, oh, and by the way, why do your characters spend so much time naked? <laughs> <laughs> and that's just a simple example of, 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 you know, one of the magic things for me about prose fiction is that for every reader, for every one of us as readers, there is this constant invitation to add ourselves to the story, remake the story in all sorts of subtle ways for ourselves, and it means that we put out the story we've written for ourselves or our main characters, and but we kind of know that it's going to be remade in all sorts yeah. of different yeah. ways. That's a brilliant description of reader response theory, which was invented by Roland Barthes, my French guy. <laughs> so, yeah, put that in your um, pipe and smoke it. I, I would, I would say he didn't invent it. I, I would say, I would say he plagiarised it. Um, <laughs> He simply observed the practice that has been um, that has, that's I think been done. Another question. <laughs> More questions. They're mostly girls who are asking. Well, they're so quite old. quite pleasing. Um, hands up again. Sorry. Our girls are better. Well, I'm going to white shirt the sofa. Okay, first time. Okay, yes. Yeah, uh, three rows back. I know that some of you write for both teenagers and adults, but which age group is hardest to write for when you're writing fiction? Uh, I don't know that it, I don't know that it's harder. I mean, I, um, I find it, um, I've said this a lot because I believe it's absolutely true, I find it really, really liberating to write for teenagers because uh, I think you're a harder audience to fool and uh, an audience that demands a, a bit more respect, but that if I can earn that, if I can that properly and treat you with disrespect that, that uh, a teenage audience is more willing to follow me to faraway places, that um, I can take the story, I can you know, really go anywhere I wanted with it because I thought, well, if, you know, if I respect you, you're willing to go with me rather than if my book had been bumped into the adult world, it would have been stuck on a genre shelf somewhere, which I would have found really irritating and you know, most people would have looked at it twice, but it's read by all kinds of teenagers. I found it really, really liberating. And I'm not just saying that it's uh, sweet talking and divine. I don't think I think there's far too much distinction made between adult and children fiction. I mean, if To Kill a Mockingbird was published today, it would be published probably in the children's list. Nobody uh, would ever read it. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's we're actually I'm, I'm I don't want to sound boastful, but I believe we're living through a golden age of literature about and and, and supposedly for young people. And uh, okay, Harry Potter and Philip Pullman have been picked up and read by adults. But there's a host of fabulous stuff out there being written that's uh, not finding its way 
into the reviewer's list and not finding its way. Why should there be this distinction? You're going to a bookshop and you find that the children's books are upstairs where people have to struggle at, right at the very back of the shop, and you're passing tables and you know, shelves full of books, and the, and the so-called children's fiction is, is, is really a part. It's an apartheid. I think that's kind of false, because actually I think a lot of the books written for and about young people are infinitely better than the stuff that you're going to find on the adult shelves, actually. Well, except there's a lot of rubbish children's books. Well, that's true, maybe. And there's, there's a lot of rubbish adult books as well. Adult books. Maybe what you should do in a bookshop yeah. is have good books, <laughs> bad books, really, yes. really crummy books. Now, now, I think, I think, I think, I think you found yourself in the wrong category, though. How, how do you <laughs> overcome that problem? Because there are thousands of books written each year. Well, actually, and yet, when you go to a bookshop every year in Britain, so few are pushed, and some of them are pushed really, really hard. Especially if they're like Jordan, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, what do authors do about that? Make sure you get the right publisher. I Does it know. matter? Um, I have a kind of slightly cynical point of view. That I tend to think that, that really good books do get read, I think. I mean, I, talk to me in 10 years when my books have languished and they're down, nobody reads them anymore and all, but I, I, I think good books find an audience. There aren't that many good books around. But does it work like movies, say, where some movies get um, all the publicity and, you know, yeah, but there are movies that have absolutely no promotion, and, and then yeah, and suddenly they appear because... It's always very quickly word of mouth. Even the huge um, opening movie with, with, with huge amounts of money spent, if the word of mouth isn't there, it just, it just falls dies. off after yeah. two yeah, weeks. And, true, yeah. and, and the great thing about books is that because they cost so much less to produce than movies, they're allowed to kind of hang around a bit longer, and there's always that potential for that, for that word of mouth. I'm beginning to sense, however, that putting knife in the title might be a really you know, if Jane Austen, you know, knife and prejudice. <laughs> so, uh, next question. Um, at the back, oh, sorry, about three from the end. Um, no, stop, stop, stop. Down here a bit. Yep. Um, have you ever felt um, that it's difficult to find a legitimate voice? Have you ever what? That it's difficult to find a legitimate voice for a social issue that perhaps you haven't experienced firsthand? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I have this problem because I keep writing books set in foreign countries. I mean, I've written books about Ethiopian street children and um, camel jockeys in Dubai and, you know, that sort of thing. Girls in war-torn Lebanon, and I feel agonized. I, I, I feel a complete fraud, and I worry about it all the time, and I think somebody's going to come up to me one day with a great big wag a finger and say, you keep putting words into the mouths of all these people. Who do you think you are? And I'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. I will never do it again. But what can you do? I don't know. I agree with you. This is a big problem. On the other hand, if we had a system whereby we said only... Ethiopian street children were allowed to write about Ethiopian street children. Well, there may not be too many novels about Ethiopian street children because yeah. on yeah. the whole, they can't read and write. Um, so then if you take that to a logical conclusion, you say, well, only women can write novels about women and only men can write novels about men and only 12-year-olds can write novels about 12-year-olds and so on. And actually, I'm, I think really that uh, it's the stories that count. It's true stories or stories with truth in them that count. 
and we just have to do our best to... They are stories. This is the, the thing. The stories, I think exactly, Morris. I think if story. any of us were to pretend that we were once Ethiopian street kids and that the book mm. was, you know, an autobiography, but, but there's this stories. Mm. And I think, you know, most, most people who pick up books understand, pick up fiction, understand that there's been a, an imaginative process by an author who is not the people they're writing about. And I've, I've, I've um, confronted some of these... Um, Thoughts a few years ago, I wrote a book about a couple of kids from Afghanistan and their parents um, coming to Australia yeah, as yeah, refugees. I'd never been to Afghanistan, I still haven't. I've never been a refugee, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a girl. One of the characters um, was a girl, etc. etc. And um, I think it's, it's what we do and it's what we should be allowed to do and judge us on whether we do it well or not. But I think it's, I think it is, it is. It is exactly what we do, and um, but it raises, I think, another question that I also think I'd love to see a bigger literature created by Ethiopian street kids, refugees from Afghanistan, etc., etc. And I think our culture would benefit by making that literature a bit more accessible to us all, rather than um, certain sort of well-known authors having to do it all the time. I want to keep doing it all, um, for my purposes all the time. But uh, I, I, when I when I wrote Boy Overboard, the the um, the story about the refugee family, I I went to all my contacts in publishing in in Australia to see if any of the many people who come to Australia from Afghanistan and neighbouring countries over about a, an eight year period had written about any of their experiences and if any of them had been published in any form. And other than a few sort of blogs, um, I, c I couldn't find that, that anything had entered mainstream publishing. And I think that's a real shame. That's, that's yeah. an area of our sort of shared um, discourse that, that, that I think you know, the culture lets us down a bit there. Well, the street kids, sorry, I just want to say one thing. The street kids I wrote about have actually, uh, they were completely brilliant because the gang that I got to know quite well in Addis Ababa. Um, went on to work with filmmakers and they've been making a soap opera um, in Addis Ababa which uh, may or may not be on Ethiopian television about their lives and they kind of got inspired to, to, to get involved in, in telling their own stories and not being ashamed of them which is what they, what they have done. Did, did you mean your question did you mean it technically as a writing exercise did you mean it about writing a, did you mean about the actual process of finding a voice besides who you are as a person or, or the dangerous political artists are trying to write them out. great example, um, which I've been trying to figure out how to get into this uh, conversation <laughs> uh, all night. And I've, I actually reviewed uh, Morris's books on the Holocaust, this 
weekend. Um, and there's a book called Boy in the Striped Pajamas. I don't know if anybody's read it or not. It's, I, I actually really loathe that book. I, and I've had practically had fist fights with um, librarians over it because I think the voice is so false and, and such a lie, basically. And not to mention the fact that the history is, is such a lie. But, you know, lots of people read it and like it. And, you know, what can I say? You know, just because the voice sounds incredibly inauthentic to me, it's obviously striking some kind of chord with other people, and the fact that I think that that actually happens to be wrong um, is obviously correct. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I can't, like, stand in every bookstore in England and stop people from buying it, so... Can I just take a moment to publicly declare my undying love for <laughs> whose... I'll get a room. Whose review... Whose review... No, we have. Uh, whose, um, uh, whose review was one of the most wonderful I've ever... Um, Benefited from, and, and but I have to say, it was a masterful piece of um, technical writing because she not only reviewed my book glowingly, but she excoriated <laughs> the, word, the boy in the striped pajamas. I, I actually have pinned your your review on my hotel wall, and I've given it a title: "Knife in the Striped Pajamas." <laughs> uh, we've probably got time for a couple more questions. Right at the back. Uh, the boy over there looks asked a question. Oh, where? Done second row, third row. Okay, you're next. John, the boy isn't here, is it? <laughs> uh, good evening. Uh, my name's Naomi Colette, and I'm on the widening participation staff here at LSE. Um, I just wanted to uh, ask if you had any particular advice for um, our young students here today, those who are thinking about becoming authors, um, particularly in terms of subjects, perhaps if they're thinking you need to do an English degree to be an author or a journalist degree, for example. Um, so I just wondered if you had any advice for our students here today. Thank you. Well, let's go along the road with that, because okay. that... But you must be brief, all right? right. <laughs> I think I, I, I have an English degree um, only because it gave me to write a lot. But I think I, when I talk to schools and things, the only, thing, the only thing, three things you need to do to be a writer is, number one, write. Because yeah. most people say they want to write, but what they mean is they want to have written. <laughs> you have to read, and you should always have a book on the go. Always, always, always. As soon as you finish, you need to pick up another one. You need to cram your head with what people write. And three, you need to know how to rewrite. What you write the first time is not going to be perfect, and if you think it is, you're a bad writer. You always need to be able to rigorously read yourself and fix it, listen to the opinions of other people, and, and make it better. So well, except for Charles Dickens, who never, ever rewrote. No, but he was completely. He published week after week after week as a, as a newspaper serial. So, so you don't always have to be able to read Unless you're Charles Dickens. You do. You have to be able to read Okay, well, I'm going to copy you, actually, because I quite agree with you. I think read, read everything. If you like fantasy, read real life. If you like real life, read fantasy. If you run out of things to read, read the back of the cornflakes packet. Um, and I think the next thing is write. Write a diary. Write uh, experiment. Write bits of dialogue. I sit on buses listening to what people say and write it down because I want to catch their voice. They must be trying to beat me, my anyway. And the third thing is live. Live. Experience yeah. things. Get out there. Don't just sit <laughs> imagining <laughs> stuff and look at the future. Live. You know, take risks. I know your parents won't like me saying this. And I know your teachers will. Take risks. Go out. Do stuff. And be alive and travel and, and meet and talk to strangers. <laughs> to hell with strangers. Talk to strangers. I don't have sex with them. <laughs> <laughs>
Read, write, and live. That's my advice. Like, like what she said. But, um, well, I see, so the one advantage of doing an English degree, I, I um, did three philosophy degrees, as you may have but the, the one advantage of doing an English degree is, you know, you spend three years reading books. So in that way, it's, it's good, but, you know, everything that's about life, everything else is great. Morris? I, I got two-thirds of the way through a degree in Yuletide services. Um, I, I've, got, I've got one word to say to you, and that is emotion, or its synonym, feelings. Particularly those of you from an Anglo background, bravely resist falling into that tradition of emotional um, repression and, and, uh, and fear, because stories are about feelings. When we, when we read fiction, we're usually encountering people, characters who are very different from us in all sorts of surface, cultural, um, and, and, and other ways. But inside them, we will only continue to read their story if we find something of ourselves inside them. And emotion is the universal language. We can be absolutely sure that every person on the planet who's not you know, more than 49% psychotic whatever their circumstances and whatever their, their goals and aims um, and priorities in life will share the same palette of emotions as we do. Every single person who will ever pick up what you write, you, you, you will know nothing about them other than that they will know what fear, jealousy, joy, love, anxiety and all the other emotions are. So when you write, make sure that you're feeling stuff on every page. Not about is this good enough and is my spelling good, but feeling what your characters are feeling because that's what will keep your readers turning the page. That and a bit of um, French philosophy on the side, but mostly <laughs> mostly, mostly feelings. Meg? Uh, yeah, I got a um, uh, this is actually true, I got a phone call yesterday from uh, a guy I went out with about 112 years ago and he, when he was 22, had been a guitarist for a really, really big rock band that toured all over the world, and um, he sounds a bit sad now because he's fifty something or other, um, and he hasn't been famous now for thirty something years. Um, and I said, "Aha!" I said, "This is what I tell absolutely anybody who'll listen: don't be in a hurry because you don't want to peak at twenty-one, and then have the rest of your life be a really, really depressing kind of, you know, low sort of cruise into anonymity and depression." So, take your time. Okay, you get the last question. Now, actually, I've got one more at the end. Um, I'd, be, I'd be quite interested to hear each of the panellists say one of their favourite novels and why. Favourite novel novels. You can say one of those, by the way. <laughs> if you dare. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's a very hard question to ask. I, I have an answer. My answer is Pride and Prejudice, and only because I really love the structure of it. But I hated it when I had to read it in school when I was 16. It didn't mean an absolute damn thing to me. Um, and I probably don't really have a favourite novel. My favourite novels usually the last one I read or, you know, something. It keeps changing. 
Morris? Um, it's a tie for me between um, The Horse's Mouth by Joyce Carey mm -hmm. and, um, and what is really a collection of short stories, which is really any of the first 10 or 12 collections of, of William stories that Richmond Crompton wrote. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> my my favourite book is not quite a novel. It's uh, Gargantua and... Um, Pantagruel by Rabelais uh, because it's the rudest book ever written. It's the only book you'll ever read which features a giant wiping his bottom with a goosey's neck. <laughs> so that's, that's my favourite. It, it is rude. It is very rude. Um, <laughs> my favourite uh, novel is Anna Karenin by Leo Tolstoy. But if you're under 20, promise me that you won't read it till you're at least 25. Otherwise, you'll spoil it for yourself. Uh, I don't have a single favourite novel, so I won't say one. But uh, uh, I just want to say that if you're a teenager, Creative Writing Competition 2009. It's a pity I haven't got an envelope, isn't it, to open. Um, for those of you, not all of you have been involved in this competition, but what we did was we asked Year 9 students, so people who are about 13 or 14, in London State Schools to think of a topic or an issue or a problem which concerned them and then to come up with a way of creatively responding to it. So something in their home or their school or their environment or something even bigger that they thought needed to be talked about. And then we asked the schools to send us their two top entries, so the schools were sort of funneling mechanism, and what we got was a selection of short stories, plays, scripts, poems on an enormous range of topics. So. From those that we received, we had a, a panel of expert judges, and it was chaired by Peter Florence, that hay festival man that ought to be here tonight but can't be. And included on our panelists, on our 
judging committee was Meg Rossoff, who you now know better than you did before, probably, and Patrick Ness, the other end, and also Ali Smith, who I think you will all know of, but isn't here tonight. And what they did was pick 10 winning entries out of all those ones that we received. And the 10 winners will get 50 pounds to spend at Waterstones and a set of signed copies of all the books by our panelists here tonight. And probably most excitingly, the chance to work on their creative writing with Ali Smith. So not a bad prize, or not a bad set of prizes. Now what the judges did was pick their 10 winners, and of those 10, judges can't resist this, of those 10 they selected three for special commendation. So I'm going to, if you like, start from the bottom and work up. So the seven, Tom Gore, I'm, no, actually, I want these people to come out and get their prizes because we've got them already, haven't we? Yes. Tom Gordon, Elthorne Park High School. Tom Gordon. Next, um, Isabel Panaeus, and I might have pronounced that incorrectly, from uh, Bishop Ramsey. Isabel Panaeus. No, she's not here. I have got a note. So we clap, clap, clap. Um, Shannon Bola Lopez, Greenford High School. Tamir Shanam, Greenford High School. <laughs> Who we thought was here, but no? No? Um, Sonia Paganuzzi, Ackland Burley. Then Ronan McKenzie from Walthamstow Girl, School for Girls, who is not here. <laughs> and uh, David Ockran from Cardinal Hinsley Maths and Computing College. The three who got special commendation got their special commendation from each of the judges. And since Ali Smith is not here, I'm going to pretend for 30 seconds that I am Ali Smith. Uh, and I'm going to tell you what she said about this author. She said, a novelist in the making. Rather nice, eh? And the person about whom she said that, I'm building the suspense, I hope you... <laughs> 
Eleanor Kerens from Colomo Convent Girls' School with a piece called All for Miranda. Eleanor Kerens. She's not here. She'll have to watch the video, but I couldn't say that at the beginning, could I? Um, and then Patrick Ness is going to come and tell you who he picked, and then Meg will come and tell us who she picked. Uh, sorry, just very quickly, we'll, we'll prolong this. Uh, the one I picked was the uh, one I thought was a uh, really terrific and instinctive grasp of narrative, which is uh, one of my most important parts of my writing, and that was uh, Tom Marshall from uh, Archbishop Tennyson School. Oh, You're supposed to ask beforehand how to pronounce the name of the person you're giving the prize to. Um, but the one that I really loved was um, Leda uh, Willotion from Walthamstow School for Girls. Is she here? Yes. Is it Leda? Hello. Um, uh, 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 while she's coming up here, I'll, I'll just say that what I loved about it was um, that Leda never actually said what the story was about. Um, but you somehow knew anyway, and I thought it was a fantastically subtle piece of writing, and uh, I, I'd be willing to say another writer in the, in the making. Yeah. Well done. Now, if you all line up, you probably want your photographs with all these people, really, don't you? Yes? Okay. Um, we could say sit on their knees, but well, if you could just pause there, we'll take photographs in a minute, if that's okay. And, troops, that's it. I think some of you, but perhaps not all of you, are invited to the top floor for drinks, but you'll know if you've been invited. For the rest of you, I do hope that you're staying around. That's a metaphor for how the world works. I do hope you're staying around for the weekend. Uh, and we've kicked off this event. We've kicked off the event very well. So thank you to all of you. And finally, last but not least, thank you to the authors. <laughs>